Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start Start saving saving today. today. Visit sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Ditch the clowns on the left. And the jokers on the right. And join Michael Smirconish right here in the middle. This is the Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. I have a guest in the on-deck circle, a book author, actually. But this introduction is going to take longer than it normally would. And I will explain why, how to get into this. Last week, Dateline NBC had a special. In other words, it was a full hour hosted by Lester Holt dedicated to one subject instead of being broken up into bit parts. And it was the story of a man named Walter Ograd. Walter Ograd, a Philly guy who did 23 years for first-degree murder of a child, he was sentenced to death and then was freed in June of 2020. He's now 55 years old at the time of his release from prison. Why was he released from prison? In part, he had been convicted based on a confession that he'd given back in 1992 that had been taken by a Philadelphia detective who recently has been charged with perjury. In other words, the Philly DA's office said recently they believe that the confession that this man, Walter Ograd, had offered had been coerced and been coerced by dirty cops, cops that had infected this and other cases. Of particular interest to me was in the Dateline special, you see the mom of the four-year-old girl Her name is Sharon Fahey, the mom. She said she believes Walter Ograd is innocent. The recent headline from the Philadelphia Inquirer that has overlap is one that said three homicide detectives charged after a grand jury had concluded they lied during a 2016 trial that was in a different case. Quote, three former longtime Philadelphia homicide detectives were charged with perjury on Friday after a grand jury concluded they lied on the witness stand during a landmark 2016 murder retrial that threatened to send an innocent man back to prison for life. That was not the Ograd case. But one of these detectives is the detective who elicited from Ograd the quote unquote confession that ended up convicting him and getting him sentenced to death. Walter Ograd was tried twice. The murder was in 1988. The case then went cold for four years. There was then a change in detectives 
Ograd, who'd been a neighbor of the four-year-old girl, was then arrested. He was tried in 1993. There were three days of deliberation. The jury then came back. They were ready to announce their verdict when all of a sudden one juror stands up and says, I can't go along with this. Chaos ensues in the courtroom. There's an outburst from the stepfather of the decedent. A mistrial's declared. There's a new trial a couple of years later, 1996. And this time, Walter Ograd was convicted and sentenced to death. So I'm watching the NBC special, and I remember this is the era when my talk radio career began. The days when I was a full-time practicing attorney and the host of a Sunday night radio program heard only in Philadelphia. So I came into the studio one day this week and I said to, to TC, comb the archives and see if you can find any reference to this particular case. Four-year-old Barbara Jean Horn was murdered and Walter Ograd was convicted for her killing. She hit pay dirt. She found something that I'd forgotten over the years, and that is that I had interviewed the juror who didn't agree with the others, and I had done it the very week of that first mistrial. Back then, I was a Sunday night host. It was Sunday night, November 7, 1993. The first trial of Walter Ograd has just ended again. He was a neighbor of a then four-year-old girl named Barbara Jean Horn who was murdered. That was in 1988. After just two and a half hours from the time she was noted to have disappeared, her body was discovered stuffed in a television box. So the person who would not go along... With the verdict, his name, Alfred Swizak, a former Marine, a retired firefighter, a resident of the city's Fishtown section. He told me in that interview that he had been an alternate juror and that the jurors had taken a leg stretch. They, with supervision, had gone to the suburbs and visited. In fact, I know the place well, Peddler's Village, a little shopping community. Something happened on the trip to Peddler's Village that by the time it ended, one of the jurors was out and all of a sudden Mr. Swizak was in. He went along with the not guilty finding, but as they're getting ready to go back into the courtroom, he has pains of guilt and decides, no, he's not going to go along with it. When did you actually make that decision? When you were on your way back into the courtroom or while you were still deliberating? At what point did you decide, hey, I've got to do something about this? Just just before, as I was thinking, uh, how could I bring back this decision? And the court officer come into the room and she said, this is how you deliver. I heard her talking to the foreman. She says, this is how you would deliver the verdict. And the first thing she said was, the judge would ask you, is everyone in agreement? But you didn't say so in that room. You waited until you were in the courtroom, correct? I was still I was still deliberating myself, but as we were walking down. As you were walking down the hallway? Yes. And so the uh, the judge, uh, Judge Juanita Kid Stout, 
looks to the foreman and says, uh, have you reached a unanimous agreement? And at that point, uh, Alfred Swizak steps up and, and you said what? I said, no, I am, not in, I am not in agreement with the verdict. And what was the judge's response? She seemed like immediately called uh, a mistrial. How did you feel at that moment, Mr. Swizak? Did you feel like the weight of the world was on your shoulders? Yes, yes, I did. I imagine it can't be an easy thing. No, it's not. It's, it's not. It's very, very trying. I consider myself a strong person, but I did weaken at one point, and I'm ashamed of it. But I'm happy that I was able to reverse that decision. I hope I'm explaining this well. You realize that this man, whose voice you just heard, was a juror, the only juror who stood in the way of a not guilty finding which would have spared Walter Ograd 23, well, actually 23 plus years, a death sentence. At the time that he was explaining this to me, I'm I'm supportive and and thinking, my God, what you know, what what a man of courage he is to have stood up for what he perceived to be what had transpired has but to be has to be unanimous. So has to be walking, unanimous. They say they all are in agreement. They stand up, leave the jury room, walk into the courtroom, and that's when he he Correct. decides that and, he can't and, go with and it. And that nasally voice that you hear is mine. Very excited <laughs> on a Sunday night to have the big get, which is the juror in this case. Now I told you there was chaos after he forced a mistrial. The stepfather of the young girl who was killed is in the courtroom and he goes ballistic. His name is John Fahey. Here again is that holdout juror explaining what he saw in the courtroom. Mr. Swizak, after this, uh, after you stood up and said that you could not uh, go along with the decision of the other jurors, uh, the stepfather uh, of the the woman who was the young girl who was murdered, John Fahey, uh, had an outburst in the courtroom. How did you feel when the stepfather went after the defendant? Uh, well, I thought that he just didn't understand what was going on. I thought that maybe he thought that the, the verdict was going to come in for a guilty, and it was my not guilty... Uh, thing that was stopping everything. In other words, you thought that he had uh, misinterpreted what you were saying? Oh, yes, definitely, I believe. You think that he, he believed that, that you were ready to acquit Ograd when, in fact, you, you thought he was guilty? Yes. Okay, so again, Mr. Squeezak, the juror, who was the only person on the jury to believe Walter Ograd guilty forces a mistrial when he doesn't go along with the not guilty findings of his fellow jurors. The stepfather of Barbara Jean is in the courtroom. He's livid. And according to the juror, he thinks that the stepfather completely reversed what was going on. That was my interview with the juror. Something else I'd forgotten. I didn't even remember conducting that interview. It's been a long time. On hold... And listening to me conduct that interview was the stepfather, John Fahey. So after a commercial break, many, many moons ago on that Sunday night radio program, now I come back, I introduce John Fahey. John Fahey, having heard the juror, says, no, he got it wrong. 
there was an outburst in the courtroom by the stepfather of Barbara Jean Horn, John Fahey. And Mr. Fahey now joins me on the WWDB Newsmakers line. Are you there, Mr. Fahey? Yes, I am. Uh, did you listen to the, uh, the, the call that I just had with Alfred Swizak? Yes, I did. Uh, Mr. Swizak said that uh, I asked him how he felt when, when you showed uh, a lot of emotion at the outcome of the trial. He said that he thought you probably misinterpreted what it was that he was saying. Is that accurate? No. No, it's not. Uh, I was looking at the jury when, uh, when, that was, uh, when the verdict was going to be read, and uh, I could tell by the look of his face uh, that he was going to say guilty. I, uh, I, don't know why, I don't know how, I don't know why I felt that way, but that's what I felt. I thought that, uh, that we were going to have 11 to 1 for an acquittal. And uh, that blew my stack. So it didn't surprise you that the other jurors were going to vote for acquittal? No, after, uh, after three days of deliberations, I mean, it, to me... Uh, it was pretty much cut and dry that he was guilty. I uh, and and we noticed a lot of the jurors. Well, not a lot, but a few of the jurors um, weren't paying too much attention to what was going on. Um, like number three juror, she she fell asleep numerous times during a trial. And uh, well, wait a minute. Let me make sure that I understand this. We're talking about the murder trial of a guy accused of murdering your four-year-old stepdaughter. And you're telling me that one of the jurors fell asleep during the trial? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, she fell asleep numerous times. One last thing, and then I'll get to my special guest. Again, this is John Fahey. He's the stepfather. He also, in that interview, back in 1993, after the first trial of Walter Ograd, made it very clear to me how he perceived Ograd's guilt or innocence. You've no doubt in your mind that Walter Ograd murdered your daughter. There's no doubt in my mind. If there was a doubt in my mind, I would not have gone after him in a courtroom. All right. This brings me to Thomas Lowenstein. He is the author of The Trials of Walter Ograd. Mr. Lowenstein, thank you for being here. Thank you for your patience listening to all of that on hold. I don't know if my audience will find it of great interest, but I suspect you do. Oh, yeah, well, first of all, thanks very much for having me. And secondly, yeah, that was fascinating. <laughs> How did you first get into this case? Um, so I actually, I arrived at this case um, being via the route of being a, the son of a homicide victim myself. So uh, my own father was murdered when I was a kid, and I had, um, in my 20s, gotten involved in speaking out against the death penalty. Um, but my argument against the death penalty was, you know, people would say, well, don't you think so-and-so that did such-and-such such awful things deserves it? And I would say, well, sure. If you're asking me, do they deserve it? Yeah, I think they do. The question isn't, do they deserve it? It's, what do we do to ourselves to give it to them? Because that was a very personal question in my own life. You know, you either get revenge yourself or you let it go. So I was actually looking to write a book about a guilty person on death row because I wanted to write about, every. you know, the innocence movement was sort of in, in full swing. And I assumed at that point that people didn't want to execute an innocent person. So I was trying to write about, but why shouldn't we execute guilty people? So I picked inmates off of death row at random and wrote them letters and basically just said to them, if you agree to this, I get to read your entire file. I'm going to interview the defense team. I'm going to interview the prosecutors, the victim's family, and I'm going to write whatever I find to be the truth. Um, 
And my deal with myself was that I, I write whatever I get back in. I don't get to pick. So Walter eventually responded and said that he was innocent, and I didn't believe him. Um, and I also had a really hard time, you know, thinking about writing about someone who had done that to a child. I didn't really want any part of that. Um, but again, I had told myself I would do whatever landed, so I did it. What was the epiphany moment for Thomas Lowenstein where you said, this guy Ograd, I don't think he did it? Well, I mean, you know, the red flags were there from the beginning. I mean, I didn't, wasn't experienced in these things, but I understood, you know, I read that he signed every page of a 16-page confession, and then the jury voted 11 to 1 to acquit him. And I thought, well, that's got to be one of the worst confessions ever given, because that doesn't happen. <laughs> um, and then it was, I would say that instead of an epiphany moment, it was more of, as I went along, everything that Walter told me turned out to be true, and I couldn't substantiate anything in any of the cases against him, time and time and time again. Um, you know, the, thing, the things that people had said about him or that they had used in court against him just turned out to be nothing. Um, there was a big moment for me, uh, actually, it's a big moment for me with interviewing the Fahey's. Um, for example, I, I didn't know until I interviewed the Fahey's. So the Fahey's, when I saw them, obviously had no, it was 2002, I think, or three. They had no love for Walter at all. Uh, they both thought he had done it. Um, they agreed to speak to me anyway. And, I, you know, at one point I asked them, what are the things, you know, that make you sure that Walter did it? And the first thing that struck me was that, you know, again, all of it was sort of secondhand stuff. None of it was solid. And then they told me the story of how a month or two before Walter's interrogation, Devlin, the detectives on the case, you know, uh, the stepfather, John, had stayed after the police calling them up and saying, what's going on, what's going on? So he calls them up to say what's going on. In 92, he gets told there's a new detective on the case. So the Fays agree to go in to talk to the new detective. So they think they're going down to get a briefing on a four-year-old case of their daughter. They were also separated at the time. So, again, if Sharon ever had any doubts about John's guilt, she was going to tell the police. Anyway, instead of getting an update, uh, Devlin puts John Fay in a chair and basically says, uh, you know, what you told us four years ago and what you told us tonight is, doesn't match. You're lying. You killed your daughter. And they go right after John for six or seven hours. And they go right after Sharon. And I sat there as they're telling me the story. And I'm thinking, well, that's exactly what they did to Walter two months later that they swear they didn't do. You know, so that was one of the big moments where, you know, when the detectives are saying, no, we never pressured Walter. He sat down and on his own gave us 16 fluent pages. Um, no, that was a big moment. They were clearly out bringing in the usual suspects and putting him through the ringer. So why were they lying about what they did to Walter? Walter Ograd um, was was convicted based, based on the strength of that 16-page confession, also jailhouse informants. There was no, you correct me, Thomas, you literally wrote the book. There was no DNA. There was no physical evidence. There were no eyewitnesses. And the response to someone who says, well, if he signed the confession, then I guess it, the confession is solid. He is not someone. How would you describe him? Would you say he's a person with disabilities? Would you say he's a person on the spectrum? How do, how do I explain that to my audience? Yeah, I think the, the way I came to think of it was that he was on the spectrum. And, you know, my big moment for that was I. So when I started looking into the case, uh, what everybody told me was that he was slow and that there was something wrong with him. You couldn't tell what it was, but you would know it if you sat with him. And a lot of people, people use the R word about him. Um, he was retarded was the word that people used about him. And that's what he had been teased with his whole life. And so when I went to see him, I was expecting a slow person. Um, 
and as I interviewed him, I spent, so the first the time I went to see him in prison, I got three days in a row with him, five or six hours a day. So I spent a lot of time with him. And it kept, I kept thinking, this is sort of like interviewing Rain Man. You ask him about, you know, what it was like with his mother when he was growing up was an insane person. And I, I would ask him, and he couldn't sort of tell you feelings about what it was like. But if you asked him how long it took to get to the Jersey Shore, he would stand up and trace out the route. You know, well, you go four blocks on Roosevelt and then, you know, I know the name, but he would literally go block by block. Right, um, right. So I had a lot of that sort of like, what, what is it about this guy? Um, and for me, the big, the big moment was I left the prison after the first day of talking to him and and I, was, and I thought, he's not slow. That's not it. He speaks about his case intelligently. That's not the problem. And I had a friend at the time who worked with kids who had Asperger's. And I thought, he's got Asperger's. That's what it is. And then it, for me, that was a big moment, too, because the whole point, you know, what the detective said about his confession was that they never pressured him. He just, without, you know, without any prodding from them, at one point, burst into tears and said, detectives, you have to give me a moment. You don't understand how hard this is for me. I never meant to hurt that little girl. And for me, that was a big, I, big moment. Because remember, when the jury acquitted him, the, the foreman of the jury told an interviewer that night after Mr. Swayzak had stood up that there is no way that man gave that confession. There is no way. And I always thought, how could you be so sure that that man, and right. then that, right. that man gave that confession? And for me, it was that moment when I was like, they're right. They didn't just make up facts. They made up a whole mindset. Walter is not capable of that kind of emotional expression. Now, for me, there was also a long time where I knew the detectives were lying about how the confession happened, but that didn't mean Walt didn't do it. In, in other um, words, the, and, the, tra- the transcription that could never have taken place in real time? Right, right. And other things, like they said, you know, that Walter, everybody agreed Walter had been driving his truck overnight the night before the confession, so the dude hadn't slept in 30 hours. And Devlin swears that he never saw Walter yawn. What? <laughs> you know, he said that they never noticed that Walt had a speech impediment. You can't talk to Walt without noticing he had a speech impediment. I mean, they were just there were so many things that they were just that seemed really impossible. Plus, this whole weird circumstance where at two o'clock in the morning, the detectives downtown, they clearly knew they had a problem with the confession because they called Joe Casey, the actual DA on the case, out of bed and made him come in overnight and look at it. So there were all these weird things that they kept saying, no, no, that's nothing. That's nothing. And and. It bothered me. The other point I'd like to make that's really important to remember is at Walt's second trial, the story that the snitch made up, Judy Rubino at the second trial was the prosecutor. And she didn't say, you know, she said to the jury, Walt lied to the detective. I mean, it was very explicit at the second trial that the first story that Walt, the confession was not true, but the true story was the second story, the one he had told the snitch, which was diametrically opposite to the first story in, in, you know, motive in execution and planning in everything and had no basis in reality. So, you know, the fact that Judy Rubino was very specific at the second trial and saying that the confession wasn't true, it's just, it's, you know, it's worth noting. <laughs> you know what, what strikes me about the case, by the way, this is Thomas Lowenstein. The book is called the trials of Walter Ograd. What strikes me as I listen to that old interview that I just uncovered is that Mr. Swizak, who stood up and said, I can't go along with this. You know, if he had gone along with it, just him, Walter Ograd would have been spared all that time on death row. Uh, The intervening time between trial one and trial two. You might be interested to know that my producer just doing a cursory records check. uh, We wanted to know, is he still alive? 
because frankly, I was going to reach out for him, Thomas, and and yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. talk to him this. And and TC, what was the best that we could do? We found an obit of a woman we think was his wife that made reference to him having predeceased. But frankly, it's a common name. Possibly, yes. But yeah. it, it says if Marie was his wife, it says she was lifetime born and bred in Fishtown, and yeah. was um, a beloved wife of sixty five years. To Al Swizak. Wow. So I, I don't know, though. I don't yeah. know if it's I don't know, uh, Thomas, if he's still with us. He struck me, yeah. ma- Marine firefighter. I'm stereotyping as the kind of guy who would have a wife of 65 plus years. Wouldn't surprise me. Uh, Thomas, yeah. uh, before before we part, I got to ask you this. So who did yeah. it? Who did it? Well, you know, the, I, the, the answer to that is that I right now am working with Sharon Fahey, the mother of Barbara Jean. Uh, we hired a private investigator and we're going to find out. Um, we have uh, several good leads. Um, there are several suspects. I have to, at this point, you know, there's just too much information that we don't have. And what I want to work with Sharon is I think, you know, when these, when these exonerations happen, it's obviously, you know, great for the exoneree who finally gets a chance to have a life back. Um, and it's great for, you know, for this justice system because we need these things. But the families of the victims get left in the dirt. Um, you know, no one really pays attention to them anymore. Um, so I want to work hard with Sharon and, and find out who did this. Um, you know, there was some DNA material that came back towards the end of the case. We need to find out precisely what that was and how it relates and whether it was the actual killer, et cetera, et cetera. She is sure she is sure it wasn't Walter Ograd, John Fahey, the stepfather, who I also interviewed on that Sunday night and just played that tape yep. those many, many years. He's not so sure. Right. John is still, um, you know, the last time I talked to John, I talked to John a few weeks ago, and he was still thinks Walter did it. I mean, he's going through the painful process, and Sharon had to go through it, too. Sure. You know, the first time I met the phase in 2002 or three, and, you know, Sharon didn't, I don't think, start to really believe in Walter's innocence until 2018 or 19. And what happened was when the new DA came in and told her the truth about what was going on, she realized that the old DA that had been supposedly on her side hadn't been telling her the truth about stuff. And, you know, I think John Fahey is going through some of that now, too. I mean, his, you know, he's put his faith. And, you know, for for John, this was, I mean, it's a very powerful scene in the book. The night before Walter's arrest, you know, he had checked himself into alcohol rehab and prayed to God that just please, I can be sober if you find, if you just bring a real killer. And the next day, Walter was arrested and John's been sober ever since. You know, so he just believes oh, in Marty geez. Devlin and he believes uh, in that stuff. And I, I, you know, I don't blame the guy in the slightest bit. And right. I think it's really hard. To, to find out that the people that have been telling you, you know, A, all, I mean, when it came out in the DA's files that Barbara Jean didn't die from being hit on the head, she got, she died from being smothered. And they knew that at both trials, they never told the jury that and they never told the family that. So, you know, it's that kind of thing when you're the family where you go, who's been telling me the truth and who hasn't. And it's incredibly painful for them. Fascinating and sad on so many levels. Well, congratulations to you for getting it all down. Thanks, the book is called The Trials of Walter Ograd, Thomas Lowenstein, the author. Thomas, I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks a lot for having me, man. Take care. As Paul Harvey would say, and now you know the rest of the story. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds.